This is the Mindful Experiment Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Vic. Excited that you're here. This podcast is all about diving deep into the mind and understanding this experiment or this game we call life. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is the Mindful Experiment Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Vic. Excited that you're here. This podcast is all about diving deep into the mind and understanding this experiment or this game we call life. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. What up, everyone? This is Dr. Vic, and you're listening to another week here with me as every Friday we we showcase here an episode that we had a wonderful interview to share some space with someone to help us level up. This week, I had the pleasure of interviewing Christina Dent, and we talked a lot about drugs, addictions, and her viewpoint on how to reduce the war on the, the end of war on drugs, but more importantly, how the war on drugs entices more of underground drugs and all these other things. Um, she it was a great conversation we had. We broke into a lot of different things. Uh, I've had discussions on addictions before. From an, I take it from a neurological standpoint, sometimes and even a consciousness vibrational standpoint of what they do, why we get addicted to them, how it's not the drug, it's it's what the drug gives us an experience. We dive into that. Christina shares her expertise on this and much more with her whole movement of she's creating and doing to end the war on drugs for good. She actually had a TED talk that talked about that. But let me tell you a little bit about her. She's the founder and president of president of End It for Good. Christina is a, is a politically conservative Christian who supported criminalizing drugs until she became a foster parent and saw the negative effects up close. 
She researched why drug-related harm isn't decreasing and become, became, became convinced it's because the criminal justice system is wrong tool for addressing drugs. In 2017, she began hosting book, book discussions in her home state of Mississippi using Johan Hari's book, Chasing the Screen, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. Those discussions grew to hundreds of people, which led to End It for Good becoming a 501c3 nonprofit in 2019. Christina invites people to explore how addressing drugs and the drug use as a complex health issue could dramatically reduce crime, overdose deaths, and the destabilization of families. Christina leads End It For Good from the same passion that led her to the foster care, helping children, families, and communities thrive. She isn't advocating drug use. She's advocating approaches to drugs that prioritize life and the opportunity to thrive. This was a good one. It's an eye opener and had me see things a little different from her standpoint so much more, which can help us all level up because especially doing, especially, especially, especially during the lockdowns, um, drugs and addiction to drugs, alcohol consumption and other things has massively skyrocketed. And uh, this is a good one to type into. So without any further ado, here is my wonderful discussion with Christina Dent. Christina, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Vic. It's great to be with you. I'm excited to have you on. I think what you're doing and all that you're up to and whatnot is very critical. I'm excited to dive deep into all this and so much more. So before we get into all that stuff, I love to hear about your story. I know the listeners kind of know how I do things already. Um, so how did you get into what you're doing today and all the work that you're doing? Yeah, so I never thought I would be doing this kind of work of um, starting a nonprofit, inviting people to reconsider how we're approaching drugs and addiction. Totally not on my radar at all. I grew up in a conservative, Christian, wonderful home in Jackson, Mississippi. I've lived here in Mississippi my whole life. I was homeschooled kindergarten through high school. Never used drugs while I was in high school. Didn't have friends that were using. Was not really part of my experience at all. I went to a Christian liberal arts university and I have a degree in Bible. So it was not part of my college experience either. Um, so really when I look at my life, I would say uh, my story of getting into this is not one of a radically changed um, lifestyle. It's really one of a radically changed mind. So that whole time um, that I was growing up in college and early adulthood, my thoughts on drugs could kind of, um, be categorized as saying, you know, drugs are bad and drug use is bad. So outlawing drugs is the right thing to do. This just makes sense. It's kind of an A plus B equals C. And I never thought about what does that actually mean? How does that look in people's lives and families and communities? Um, and the first time I began to think about that was when my husband and I became foster parents. And then through about four years of foster care, I came close to the impact of how we handle drugs and addiction for the first time. And the person who showed me that was a woman named Joanne. She had struggled with addiction for many, many years, um, had started using drugs when she was in her early teens, and she, now she was in um, her early 30s. And she um, had not been able to beat her addiction while she was pregnant with her first child. And um, so her son was removed from her custody and put into foster care after he was born. And they took him straight from the hospital to our house. And we became Beckham's foster parents. And I didn't know anything about addiction. I could not fathom how a mother who loved her child could possibly be using drugs while she was pregnant. I had no category for that. In my mind, um, if, a if a mom was using drugs and pregnant, that meant she didn't love her child. Um, and so I had no 
category for <laughs> what to think about Joanne other than judgment. So Beckham comes to our house about a week later, he has his first visit with Joanne at the local child welfare office. So I drive him up there along with my other three young kids and I pull into the parking lot. I pop his car seat out of my van, turn around and I see this woman sprinting across the parking lot towards me and she's weeping. She runs over and she just starts kissing Beckham while I'm kind of awkwardly holding his car seat and it's Joanne. Uh, This is the first time she's seen him since she was separated from him at the hospital. And I had no category for this. What on earth? What is happening here? This is not at all what I expected. Um, And I was really suspicious. I thought this doesn't make any sense. How could this kind of love have also exposed him to potentially harmful substances while she, she was pregnant with him? This just doesn't make sense. So Beckham had his one hour of visit with Joanne. Um, and I took my kids to a local park. Meanwhile, you know, my, my heart is kind of warring within me over what I'm seeing and experiencing and how to understand that. And then Beckham came home with me and Joanne went to inpatient drug treatment a couple hours away in North Mississippi. And she would call me from treatment and she wanted to know everything about what Beckham was doing. And she would then ask me to put her on speakerphone and she would sing to Beckham over the phone. And the more that I got to know Joanne, the more I felt this war in my heart starting over. This is not what I thought about mom struggling with addiction. Uh, What I'm seeing is true. She's a mom like me who loves her son just as much as I love my three sons. Her addiction is a really complex uh, health crisis, maybe spiritual crisis, maybe lots of crises. Um, but I knew that it wasn't a criminal crisis. I could see that in Joanne. This is a mother who desperately wants to be there for her son, um, who desperately wants to be free from her addiction. This isn't about her being um, a bad person, doing bad things. Uh, The more I got to know her, the more I realized this is a hurting person who is trying to feel better um, in unhealthy ways, but wants to be there for her son. And that started this just war in my heart because I knew that we were putting thousands of people like Joanne in jails and prisons every day here in Mississippi, as well as nationally, internationally. And I knew that something was wrong with that because I could see that prison wasn't going to help Joanne deal with her addiction because drugs are readily available in jails and prisons. And it wasn't going to help Beckham because it would leave him without a mother who clearly adored and loved him and wanted to be there for him. And that effect of kind of family destabilization would have impacts into the next generation. We know that. We know that parental separation has an impact on children far into their adulthood. So it really started this kind of war in my mind over what are we doing? What's happening? Why are we doing this? And are there different ways that we could approach drugs and addiction other than the criminal justice system that would get us better outcomes? And that started this journey of learning for me. What a what an awesome like you know journey to go through and see you know learning that piece of information how monumental it has been to then you know move forward from that point on. Yeah, so it really was kind of <laughs> you know it's it's easier for me to talk about it now, but really it was kind of this two year journey after that of like wait a second uh, questioning all of these things that I had thought my whole life up until then um, many judgments that I had made. 
uh, incorrectly, many ways that I had misunderstood things. And so really what I learned along that journey what I tried to do is like zoom out as far as I could get like, okay, let's, let's not think about Joanne. Let's look at this big picture. You know, you should never make policy decisions based on one personal experience. That's a terrible way to, to do things. And you're probably going to get some really harmful laws if you do that. So I want to see big picture what's really happening. And what I came to realize is that when you think about the kinds of harm that we have from drugs in our society, it really, you know, we've kind of culturally understood it as there's one kind of harm. It's just harm from drugs. But the more that I learn, the more I realize there's actually two different kinds of harm that are happening simultaneously. One is the kind of harm that can happen from drugs, what they can do to your body, the chemicals, you know, ingested. And then the other kind of harm is harm that comes from criminalizing those drugs that you're putting in your body. And the more that I learned, the more I saw these two buckets of separate harms. And the more I realized the vast majority of the harm that we see is actually um, either created by or exacerbated by criminalizing those substances. And that was a new concept for me. So I'll just quickly kind of explain that because it is for a lot of people who just haven't, you know, haven't like me had an opportunity to kind of rethink or learn what we're doing with drugs. So when you think about what happens when you criminalize a substance? Um, let's take something that's not a drug. So let's not think about heroin. Let's think about like uh, tomatoes. You have somebody who is producing and selling tomatoes. You have somebody who's buying them. And then you have the thing that's exchanging hands. You have the actual product, the tomatoes. So if we go back to talking about drugs, those same things are present there. We have people who are producing and selling them, people who are buying them and then the actual drugs that are exchanging hands. And the more I learned, the more I realized um, criminalizing drugs increases harm in all three of those categories. So on the market side with production and sale, it forces a massive market underground. So they're not allowed to be sold legally. Drugs aren't allowed to be sold legally. So they're sold illegally. And there's no court system for people to settle their disputes. And so it increases crime by like 10,000%. The vast majority of all crime that we have isn't created by drugs. It's created by the criminalization of drugs, by forcing that, that extremely lucrative market underground. And now it's just gangs and cartels that have the ability to make all of the money from the illegal drug trade. So we're not fighting crime by criminalizing drugs. We're actually funding it by giving a $500 billion a year industry to people who are only willing to break the law. So we have an increase in crime because of that market transfer from a legal transfer or a legal market to an illegal market. So we have a lot of extra harm, a lot of extra crime coming, coming from the market, then you have what happens to a, the substance that's changing hands when you criminalize it. So when you have a legal regulated substance, you know how much, you know, you know, the potency, you know, the purity, you can look on the bottle and see how much you're supposed to take. Um, that's going to help you and not kill you. But when you have drugs that are forced out of a legal way of being sold, you lose all of that regulatory opportunity. And instead you have little baggies of you know, white powder that are being sold on the street and people have no idea what it is that they're actually getting. Um, if it's enough, that's going to get them high or if it's too much and it's going to kill them, there's no way for them to know. And what 
prohibition of drugs does is it, it, it encourages the underground market to sell more and more potent substances. So if you're going to smuggle something, you want to have the biggest punch in the smallest package. Uh, so if you've been to a sports stadium, let's say, where alcohol is prohibited on the inside, what you see is when people are tailgating outside, their vast majority of them are drinking beer. But when you move inside the stadium where alcohol is prohibited, suddenly they start drinking hard liquor. But it's not because their tastes have changed around alcohol. It's because the forces of prohibition have come into play. And when you need to smuggle something, you need that biggest punch in the smallest package. And that's what we're seeing today with fentanyl, which is all over the news, people dying of um, overdoses from fentanyl. Fentanyl is a really potent opioid. It's used in hospitals across the country every single day in safe and effective ways. It's not fentanyl per se that's killing people. It's the fact that fentanyl is on the street that's killing people and they're getting it in unregulated forms. And if you don't dose it appropriately, um, there's just a razor thin margin between getting high and dying if you're using fentanyl. So uh, my son, when he was four, my youngest son, he um, slammed his finger in a door and had to go to the emergency room to get stitches in it. So I brought him into the emergency room. He's crying. We're in the, um, the nurses are coming around trying to figure out what he needs. And a nurse comes in, she's smiling and she says, um, great. She's got a little syringe dropper. She says, great. I've got some fentanyl for him. It's going to help him feel better until the resident can come in and put those stitches in. Now, how could you give a four-year-old straight, pure medical grade fentanyl and it doesn't kill him. It helps him. And yet we have grown men and women who are dying every day from overdoses from fentanyl. It's not because of fentanyl. It's because when you give fentanyl in a way that's legal and regulated, it can be a helpful tool. When people are getting it on the street where it's not regulated, it can easily kill them. So this market transfer increases crime. The substance, what happens to substances increases potency and you lose all control over what's actually in the substance and people can put whatever they want to in there. They can put fentanyl, they can put brick dust, they can put you know, who knows what they're, they're cutting these drugs with on the street, but then you have what happens to consumers. So this is where kind of my experience with Joanne helped me to begin to question. And I learned those other things along the way, that journey of learning, but what happens to consumers when we criminalize them? So we go from treating consumers as, um, you know, just everyday people, if they're non-problematically using substances, just like we treat people who drink a glass of wine after dinner, uh, we don't treat them as patients that need help. We don't treat them as criminals that need punishment. We just say, that's your, that's your choice. You may choose to non-problematically use drugs. Um, but for people who are problematically using, like Joanne was, um, we have a choice of what we're going to do. Are we going to offer them um, medical care? Are we going to treat them more as maybe somebody who needs help, a patient, or as somebody who needs to be arrested and put in prison and treated as a criminal? Um, and so... Today, when we think about consumers, one in 10 Americans has used an illegal drug recently. Now, that number is not coming from some drug policy reform organization. It's coming from the Office of National Drug Control Policy. That's like the, the, uh, 
the people at the federal level who are in charge of enforcing drug prohibition, their number is that one in 10 Americans has used an illegal drug recently. So we have lots and lots of consumers of illegal drugs. And yet we have tens of thousands of people every year who are arrested, um, put into the criminal justice system, which is very difficult to get out of once you are in. Um, It's lots of financial strain. Certainly you can lose your liberty and actually be incarcerated. Um, So, you know, for Joanne, she wasn't arrested for um, that prenatal drug use, but I happened to be in a courtroom um, and I, I'm not in courtrooms regularly. This was kind of a one-time experience. I was there supporting a friend. And what happens in courtrooms for sentencing is you're there and you kind of, you have to get there at nine o'clock or whatever. And then you hear everyone's cases and you just have to be there until the person you're there to support case is called because the sentencing goes very quickly. This is not like what you see on TV where, you know, there's the judge and the jury and lots of, uh, you know, it's an hour, two hours long of making the case. Um, my experience that day was many cases were sentenced within five minutes. And so I was in there and there was a guy who was brought in and he was a young, I mean, he was probably in his early twenties and his, uh, offense was heroin possession. So not selling, not trafficking, not, not anything. It was just, uh, heroin possession. He had never been in trouble with the law before, um, never had any kind of previous anything, but had been picked up for heroin possession. And he had already been sitting in jail for four months at the time that the sentencing hearing came around. And it wasn't actually for him to be sentenced. It was because he was asking to have his bail amount decreased. He was sitting in jail on a $10,000 bail, uh, even for a first time interaction with law enforcement that was nonviolent. It was just possession of um, heroin. And so he had a really unique name and I wanted to know, like, I wonder what this guy's story is, because I wonder what it's like for him to be sitting in jail for four months when he's never had an interaction with the law before. Um, And so I looked him up on Facebook when I got home, I quickly easily found him and he's a husband, he's a father um, and he's employed or was at the time of his arrest. So I just started thinking about what, what are we doing to families? Um, not just to, you know, to people like Joanne, Joanne's a single mom, um, but to people like this man who is, you know, perhaps he is uh, the sole breadwinner in his home. He's a father with a, a toddler aged daughter. Um, he's a husband to a wife. Now we can say, well, he shouldn't have been using heroin. Well, certainly we can agree on that. Uh, but what are we doing to his family, to his future, to his ability to provide for his family, um, for his ability to be there for his wife and daughter? Are we helping to stabilize that family and help them um, grow and flourish? Or is him sitting in jail for four months? Is it really just a nuclear bomb on that family? So I just began to see that this uh, increase of crime and increase of potency and purity of substances, which is, um, or increase of potency and contamination, which is by far contributing the most to our overdose crisis. The vast majority of people dying are dying from contaminated drugs, not from drugs they got from a doctor. And then we're just loading consumers into jails and prisons for an issue that can't be fixed by trauma. So, you know, the more that we know about addiction, the more we know that one of the primary drivers of addiction 
is, is trauma. It is, you know, kind of to trying to self-medicate the effects of trauma in a person's life. And so here we are using trauma, using the trauma of jail to separate you from your family, from your work, from your housing. We're using trauma to try to address a problem that is fundamentally made worse by trauma. And it is no wonder that we are not getting good outcomes, that we continue to see drug use increase just here in Mississippi, it's increased. Illegal drug use has increased over 30% in the last 10 years. Our overdose rate has increased over 80% in the last three years. These are not the outcomes that we want. And when you take a step back and begin to look at why are we getting those outcomes, it's because of the way that we're approaching it through the criminal justice system. And if we want to save lives and stabilize families, we have to rethink using that tool and instead shift towards using health-centered approaches. All right, guys, we're going to take a quick break here. Here is a word from our sponsor. The last two years have been crazy. We've never experienced anything like it in our lifetimes. We've never experienced such an effect on our mental well-being. Unfortunately, a lot of us have been beaten down by anxiety, stress, and poor sleep due to all the uncertainty in the world. And if you're a working parent, you've had the extra difficulty of keeping your kids occupied 24-7 while trying to work from home, and that's just not an easy task. So if you feel exhausted and burnt out, you're not alone. There are tens of thousands of people in a similar place right now. The question is, what can we do to enhance our mental wellness and recapture our zest for life? One critical thing I'm advising all my family and friends to do is take magnesium breakthrough daily. Here's why. Stress and anxiety deplete your magnesium levels. Low magnesium levels then contribute to more anxiety. It's a vicious cycle. By supplementing with magnesium breakthrough, you can break that cycle because you'll be getting seven unique forms of organic full spectrum magnesium for stress relief and better sleep all in one bottle. Taking Magnesium Breakthrough will help you to experience more energy, stronger bones, healthier blood pressure, less irritability, a calmer mood, reduced muscle cramping, even fewer migraines. And because it supports mental wellness, Magnesium Breakthrough can help you finally feel yourself again. Simply take two capsules before you go to bed and you'll be amazed by the improvements in your mood and your energy levels and how much more rested you feel when you wake up. For an exclusive offer for my listeners, Go to magbreakthrough.com forward slash Dr. Vic and use Dr. Vic 10 during checkout to save 10% and get free shipping. All right, let's get back to this rocking episode. I love how you bring this all up and I appreciate the the elaborate explanation on all this and, and so forth because it's like one of those things where... You know, the war on drugs, I mean, if you look at the the, the stats of, and, and you probably know this way better than I do, but like you look at the stats when war on drugs started and you look at where we are now, it's like, it's just a failing system. Mm-hmm. And and then you look at, I love what you brought up at the end here where you're talking about the, how we're actually just putting more fuel to the fire. Mm-hmm. Because it's one of the things where when we look at, you know, you brought up the whole thing of why addiction occurs and it's, and it's, it's, it's trauma. Um, and I've always said people get addicted because you're trying to avoid something within you're trying to numb it to, and it's more of, uh, my background. I've learned that it's addictions happen because not like the substance. Sometimes people get so hooked, like, well, this is a very addictive substance. This is why they do this. Well, I'm like, it's more of, it could be that. And I'm not saying it isn't, but there's also what I've learned is that it's more of whatever's that gateway to get them to the experience or the uh, the, the, the level of where they want to go, that feeling of like release or 
letting go of the trauma, forgetting it, you know, whatever, numbing it, whatever that is. And I'm like, it could be anything that shows up. It's just what their choice is that that gives them that experience until it doesn't anymore. Right. Yeah. And for me, that was totally new. I had never thought about or, excuse me, understood, you know, what causes addiction. I had no concept that trauma was part of this equation at all. Um, Because like you said, we have this strong narrative that it's the drugs, you know, the drugs almost have a life of their own. And, you know, you take them one time and they have just hooked you in. The reality is that the vast majority of people who try any drug never become addicted to it, including heroin, cocaine, amphetamines, whatever it is. The vast majority of people who use it um, don't become addicted. Most of them use it either recreationally or only very infrequently. Um, There's just about a 10% uh, number of people, and that's fairly stable for all drugs. Um, Heroin is a little bit higher, but the vast majority of drugs have about 10% of people who use them that become addicted to them. And um, or 10% of the people who are currently using them are addicted to them. It's actually much, much lower um, in terms of, you know, what first time use or that sort of thing. So why those 10%? I think you are, that's so true. It, it, it isn't the drug itself. It's what the drug is doing for them, what it's helping them to um, avoid or self-medicate. Um, an interesting um, thing that I had read was, I had read Johan Hari's book, Chasing the Scream, which is absolutely fantastic book on these issues and really helping to kind of dive into the last hundred years of what we've done with drugs and addiction and all told through really impactful personal stories. Um, But one of the things he says in there is that when he went and interviewed um, a bunch of women who were in jail for um, drug possession charges. The vast majority of them, you know, when he asked them, what was it like the first time that you took heroin? Um, The vast majority of them gave a response that was something to the effect of, it felt like a warm, comforting hug. It felt like being loved unconditionally. It felt like uh, intense well-being. Now, that's not at all the story that we have told culturally about heroin use. We have told this story that It's crazy people doing crazy things. You need to be afraid of them. They are dangerous. And yet when you, when you listen to the stories of the people who are actually using the substances, what you find is it's doing something for them. It's giving them something that we can all uh, identify with who doesn't want to feel unconditionally loved, who doesn't want to feel well-being, who doesn't want to feel a warm, soft hug that you can receive in a, um, in a comforting way. These are human experiences, human needs. Now, does that mean that heroin is the right way to go about finding those things? Maybe not, but it's an understandable response that people have. So I have a friend who says, you know, look, we have, we've said drugs are the problem. Drugs aren't the problem. Drugs are a solution attempt at other problems. And the quicker that we can shift from thinking about drugs as the problem to drugs as just a, they're a symptom of whatever the real problem might be in a person's life. um, We're going to start to get better outcomes when we can see them just as a, as a mechanism uh, for coping rather than the actual problem themselves. I have a friend who's a therapist and he does a lot of work with people um, struggling with addiction. 
And he said, uh, now he has uh, credentials behind that. But even before he started specializing in addiction, um, he said, you know, I was working with addicted people. And what I found is that I was having a lot of success because I never talked about the drug. I never talked about the thing that they were addicted to. We talked about what it was that the thing was doing for them. We talked about the other things in their life because that's what's driving the addiction. And you can't get rid of the, the, you know, the drug or the gambling or whatever the addiction is, unless you address why that addiction is there. What is it doing for them? And how can you help them find other ways to cope that are not um, so harmful? So absolutely, we're, we're on the wrong track when we have got our focus on um, the, the mechanism people are using to cope. We need to, to shift our focus to what are they coping with and how can we help them cope with that in a healthier way? I think once we do that, it, it will shift the game altogether and we won't have all these things, you know, until then, because it's, 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 it, it's, um, I know what's the word I want to use. Yeah, no, it's, it's a fascinating to me about this because it's like, again, it, it, we're looking at something and, and again, like you said, they're trying to, they don't want to be in that state and they're just trying to do whatever they can is the best to get out of that in any way they can to get that break, to get that. Now I've had one, one person told me one time, like with they, I interviewed someone and they were talking about how they used to have an addiction. And then they were like, it was just the one thing that gave me an escape of life. And mm-hmm. I just wanted that. I didn't care what the negative effects were. I didn't care about that. I just wanted the escape. I didn't care what I took to get there. I just wanted that escape. Mm-hmm. And then, it, then I was like, so what did you do to break away from that and find something else to give you that perspective to center yourself, break away from that. So you don't have to do it because in life, what we resist only makes more of. And so like you were talking about earlier too, how the more we have restrictions on drugs, the more it creates a more underground aspect of things. And then, you know, no regulation on that. You never know what you're taking. I mean, what is it? Marijuana has over 40 different uh, street marijuana, at least has, I don't know how many chemicals are added to it mm-hmm. um, compared to if you go to like in, in Chicago and Illinois, we, we, it's, it's recreational. If you go to dispensary, you know, you're getting pure marijuana. That's it. There's nothing else mm-hmm. mixed into that. Yeah. And so that's a, that's a tough thing for um, a lot of people, particularly people with my background coming from a more conservative background um, or, you know, a faith-based, you know, Christian worldview or other faiths as well. Um, There's, there's this kind of an immediate resistance to, Ooh, no, you know, I don't want people to, uh, I feel like, you know, if we allow legal access, we're just patting people on the back and saying, go use these substances. We don't care. Um, and I would just encourage people to, to think about it more broadly than that. There are lots of things that um, maybe are wrong, maybe are harmful, that we have not made illegal. Um, you know, think about something like adultery. We don't put people in jail for committing adultery, even though it is devastating to people's lives. And yet we have said, you know what, that's something that's devastating. And yet jail is not going to fix that. And it's the wrong tool for that. Uh, we think about, you know, other kinds of addictions, uh, gambling addiction or alcohol addiction or, you know, tobacco or pornography. There's lots of addictions that can be really harmful to people. And yet we don't put the vast majority of people struggling with addiction in prison for just what they're using to, to fuel their addiction. Now, you know, if they go harm people, if you drive drunk um, and you hurt somebody, where you're caught driving drunk, yes, you're going to be prosecuted for that because you're endangering other people now. It's not just your own addiction. You're now, you know, that addiction is moving into the public sphere. 
So whether or not something is right or wrong is not the barometer of whether or not it should be illegal. Um, and we intuitively know that. We know, you know, if we if everything we thought was kind of wrong was made illegal, we would all be in jail. There would be nobody left <laughs> in the world. And so we know that. And yet with drugs, this narrative of um, the moral right thing to do is to make drugs illegal has been so deeply interwoven into the fabric of American culture uh, that it's really difficult to see outside of that. And yet, I think what what I came to the conclusion of um, is that as I looked at the amount of lives that were being lost or destroyed by the effects of prohibition, not by the effects of the substance, which certainly can have its own effects, but by prohibition, all of the crime um, and the destabilization, particularly of countries um, south of our border, producing countries, they're producing drugs that Americans are consuming. We drive the vast majority of, uh, we consume more drugs than any other country in the world. And so we have production countries that are producing those drugs on the underground market, selling them to American consumers primarily. And they are bearing the weight of incredible crime and violence in their communities. And that's preventable. That's a choice we have made. Um, I was talking with a guy last summer who his mom grew up in Colombia and it was during kind of the height of Colombia's cocaine trade on the underground market. And as I was talking to him, we were talking over Zoom because in the middle of COVID and he said, um, yeah, actually, you know, can you see the necklace that I'm wearing? And his mom had passed away a couple of years ago and he was wearing a necklace that she had worn when she was a girl growing up in Colombia. It was a little gold cutout in the shape of the country of Colombia. And he flipped it around on the back and he leaned close to his computer. And on the back of it was um, engraved her blood type. And what the government had encouraged them to do when she was growing up in Colombia was to have their blood type either tattooed on their body or on their body in some way. She wore hers on a little charm necklace because so many civilians were getting um, you know, caught in the crossfire of this extremely violent underground market that was selling illegal drugs because they weren't allowed to be sold legally. That even a girl growing up in Colombia whose family was not involved in the, the drug trade at all um, had to wear that necklace because so many people uh, who were just civilians were living in that kind of world where they could at any time be caught up in that violence. So that is a, that's a preventable experience for millions of children growing up in high crime areas. The majority of that crime is caused by prohibition. We made a choice to prohibit, to push those drugs underground, to empower and fund those gang and cartel activities with all of that money. And we can make a choice not to do that anymore. Uh, we can make a choice not to force so many people to only have access to drugs um, on the underground market where they're contaminated and very potent. The vast majority of these overdose deaths are preventable. They're happening because people are using contaminated drugs and they don't know what is in them. The vast majority of people, if we look at our prison population, if you trace that back to how did you begin your journey in the criminal justice system? It is unbelievable how many of those people, it was drug charges. And once you get in, now you're exposed to people who are um, committing uh, harder crimes. Uh, one one uh, official here in Jackson said, you know, jail is the community college of real crime. 
Uh, prison is the university of real crime. So if you want to teach people how to be better criminals, send them to jail and prison because that's what they're going to get exposed to. And then when they come out of jail and prison, they're going to have a criminal record and they can't work in the legal economy in any way that allows them to actually make a, a livable wage because of their criminal record. What do they have to go back to? Well, they can participate in the underground drug market and they can make a lot of money doing that. And chances are they've learned how to do it really well while they were in jail and prison for you know a, a nonviolent drug charge. So we're just creating death, violence, um, so much destabilization of families. And for me, as someone who has more conservative and Christian values, when I think about, you know, what are the values that I hold more deeply kind of than this support for the drug war? I want uh, people to stay alive and value every single human life. I want families to be strong. I want communities to be safe. I want people to be able to have the dignity of work and providing for themselves and their families. And I began to see that actually drug prohibition makes all of those things worse. It's causing tens of thousands of deaths every year that are preventable um, and millions of families to be destabilized and unable to provide for themselves. So I didn't change my mind about how we handle drugs because I changed my values. It was I learned new information and I realized the same values I've always had have led me to a different conclusion about the best way to handle drugs. So, you know, where you are, Vic, you guys have recreational marijuana. We don't here uh, in Mississippi or any of these Southern states yet. And yet uh, I have family in other parts of the country. I've been to Colorado and Washington state since they legalized marijuana. Um, I drive past those dispensaries. I've never been in one. I just, I don't have any interest in substance use. And yet I can see those as a symbol um, uh, that drug prohibition there of marijuana is over. And that to me, I can, I can celebrate as a win, not because I want people using marijuana, but in the same way that I drive past a liquor store and I say, it's much better that that alcohol is being sold in a legal regulated way than it would be if we went back to alcohol prohibition and we've got Al Capone on the street again, and all of these people being killed over the alcohol trade. Um, so we can, we can simultaneously say, we don't want people using drugs. And yet the least harmful way to handle those drugs is to allow them to be sold in some form of legal regulated way so we can save lives and save families. No, I, I love that. I agree with you on this and every aspect of it, because um, it, it's one of those things like when you were talking, I was thinking about, again, in Chicago, when we talk about resisting and all these different things, if you look at the most one of the cities with the biggest legislation and I'm going to get another hot topic here, but gun control, right? And in, in Chicago, we have one of the strictest laws on that. When you look at our crime rates, they're one of the highest. We're murder. We're one of the murder capitals of uh, cities in the United States. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the things where, you know, when I'm thinking of this and you were sharing the systems and everything that's going on, like to me, my mind, what I understand and what I'm hearing from you and everything I've researched and studied on this stuff because um, I, I, I listened to um, uh, years ago, Ron Paul started talking about the war on mm -hmm. drugs and stuff, and he opened up a whole door for me. And, and I was just like, this is a system that they want. It's not a system that is like here to help. It's here to keep them there to perpetuate the system for whatever you want to call it. I, I won't get into that, but it's one of the things where like when I'm hearing you talk and, I, and the stuff I know, I'm like, there, there, there's, there's, there's no reason why they want to see the system go away. 
Like they don't want to yeah. solve the, there's no, there's no, there's no financial incentive because in the health world, it's kind of the same thing. Holistic measurements and holistic things don't get out to the media and the public because there's not a huge financial incentive for, uh, for people on that. Is it, is it, and you don't have to answer this by any means, but, um, my mind just goes there and it's like, is there any incentive for them to solve this problem? Yeah. So if you look at all of the people, organizations, um, government entities whose jobs are created around continuing to perpetuate drug prohibition, there are lots and lots of people whose jobs have been uh, created over the last 100 years um, to enforce the policies of drug prohibition. So when we think about um, ending it and you see this kind of rising up against it, you do have people that feel on in some moral way that, you know, they have a moral problem with that. Now, I would say I, I have a moral problem with prohibition because of the amount of human lives that it costs us, that people that don't have to die. For me, the value of human life is kind of an ultimate value. So um, I, I can't morally support that anymore because of the sheer destruction of life that it's causing. Um, but yes, there's a lot of money being made off of um, the impacts of prohibition, whether that's in the criminal justice system, um, whether that's in, you know, kind of uh, probation and parole, whether like there's just a lot of money. And you think about all of the industries that are part of that criminal justice system. You have people supplying phone services to prisons and uniforms and you know all of these different things. There's lots of industries that have a vested interest in continuing it um, and keeping it going. There's a lot less money to be made in allowing people to have freedom and to make their own personal choices um, because we're not, you know, managing their their lives for them or um, and literally managing their lives for them by putting them in in prison and paying for that with taxpayer money. So there's not a lot of money in uh, ending the war on drugs, which is why. For those of us who want to see it end, it is imperative that we don't sit on the sidelines and say, someone else is going to do this. Someone else is going to take up this cause um, because the people that are directly impacted, the people who are paying the highest price do not have the voice to be able to say, this is uh, hurting us and this needs to end because we have stigmatized and villainized people who consume substances and people who have been in any sort of interaction with the criminal justice system. So when somebody has an experience and they can say, you don't understand what this is doing to us, we have so stigmatized them that we easily discard their voices and say, well, we can't, we can't trust you. Of course you would say that because you got caught and you just don't want to get caught. And in reality, um, their stories are true. What it's like to be in the criminal justice system is true. It is incredibly traumatic. It's the most traumatic legal thing we can do to people, separating them from everything, uh, you know, from their liberty, certainly, but all the good things in their life and putting them into a system where we know that there is rampant physical, sexual, and emotional abuse that's happening to people um, with very little oversight. And we we bear our responsibility for that. That's for me, that's what I feel. I as as long as these policies are perpetuated, those of us who are voting for them, we bear the the moral weight of what is happening to people because we have the opportunity and we have the ability to change what we're doing. 
And so I, I, that's what drives me. I want to be part of solutions. Um, I don't really care about drug use at all. I don't want to use these drugs that I want to be made legal and regulated. Um, I want to care for people and I want to care for families and I want fewer children in foster care and I want more kids at home with their parents and parents raising kids and parents healthy and able to raise kids. That's what makes me passionate about this. Um, And that's what makes me able to, even with three sons at home, my oldest just turned 13 last week. I don't want them using drugs. And yet uh, I was just telling them last night about this conference we had yesterday here in Mississippi. I was flipping through pictures and talking to them about it. And I was flipping through and just telling them, you know, um, this is my friend who lost her son to an overdose a couple of years ago. This is my friend whose son is in prison for 20 years um, for, you know, a a crime related to his addiction. Uh, And I, I want them to see that their mom is working on something that, you know, these drugs can be really harmful. They can really, um, uh, they can be part of a, a really destructive pattern in your life. And yet we can handle drug use in a way that doesn't further destroy and destabilize people's lives. Um, that's what I want for my sons. That's what I want for all of the kids that are growing up now. What I want for future generations here in America. And America has the power to change the way that the world sees drug policy. We, we kind of started a lot of the, um, the, the biggest uh, types of prohibition, and we largely exported those to the rest of the world. And we can take that first step again in ending prohibition and switching to a health-centered approach that's going to allow people like Joanne to um, have a better life. You know, Joanne today is sober. Um, she's been sober now for five years. Beckham just is in kindergarten this year, and she now works full-time with other people who are trying to enter long-term sobriety. She does um, intake coordination at a treatment center. So she's doing great. Um, That's only possible because she's not in prison while Beckham has been growing up without her. Now that doesn't mean that it happens that way for everybody. There's lots of people who go to treatment and, you know, they relapse. Um, Sometimes that relapse is deadly. Sometimes they go to treatment uh, seven, eight, 10 times. but it can only happen in a positive way if she's not in prison. You know, we don't get a guaranteed positive outcome if we don't put her in prison, but we know what's going to happen if we do. Uh, Beckham's going to grow up without a mom and Joanne's addiction is not going to be treated in prison. And so we have options. We don't have a perfect solution. There is no perfect solution in a world that's broken and in people that have experiences that they want to numb and their substances that allow them to do that sometimes in helpful ways, sometimes in really harmful ways. Um, So Joanne is kind of this, you know, positive outcome story about the same time that that was happening with us and Joanne. There was another mom, very similar demographic to Joanne named Nikki, who was um, criminalized for her prenatal drug use. So Joanne was using drugs off the street and did not get caught. Nikki um, had relapsed during her pregnancy and was doctor shopping to get uh, the prescription drugs that she had relapsed on. And because of that, her name came up in the prescription drug monitoring system and she was arrested. She was prosecuted and she just got out of prison about two months ago. So while Joanne has been there raising her son, Nikki has been in prison while her mom has been raising hers. So we, we can look at those two women and say, you know, 
we didn't have a guaranteed outcome with Joanne, but we knew exactly what was going to happen with Nikki. Her bond with her children was broken for that many years. Um, and now she's having to come back with a felony record, trying to rebuild a life. Uh, it doesn't have to be that way. We do not have to respond to drug use in that way. If we want fewer moms using drugs while they're pregnant, we need to make the door to help as wide and free and not free financially. I mean, wide as in like unintimidating, we're not going to take away your liberty. We're not going to um, arrest you as possible. Um, because if women are scared when they are pregnant, if they're scared that they can't beat their addiction, it's going to keep them away from prenatal care, which is the number one thing that could help them during their pregnancy. So we just, we have, we have to break away from this mindset of somebody's doing something bad. We need to punish them for it. If we want to help fewer children be exposed to drugs prenatally, we need moms out there, women who get pregnant to know the door to help is wide open to you. And we want to help you have the healthiest pregnancy that you can. We can handle more people like Joanne and help them to get treatment if they're ready for that. We do not have to destabilize families in the way that we did for Nikki. And that's the choice that's before us. It was people like, you know, you and me, everybody else um, who has led us to the place that we are on drug policy and drug prohibition. And it is just regular people like you and me that can lead us back out of that. We're voters. We can let our elected officials know we don't want to continue down this path. We want policies that reduce harm, that save lives. And the more people that make that voice heard, the quicker we will end the failed policies of the past and be able to chart a new course into policies that save lives and help more and more people have a life that is thriving. I love that. I I could talk to you all day about a lot of things you just shared in there. Um, but, you know, for those who are listening and they're like, yes, I want to know more about you following you, seeing what you're up to and all the work you're doing and how to be more advocates in this area and so much more. How can they connect with you? They can go to enditforgood.com. That's E-N-D, like end it for good, which for us, that would mean end the war on drugs for good. Enditforgood.com. Um, slash get started. There's a couple of options there for ways that they can get involved, things they can do. Um, you can follow me on social media at Christina B. Dent and also end it for good at end it for good MS. Uh, we're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Um, and if you want to kind of, uh, if you're, if you say, yes, I want to be part of this, but I'm just not sure how to like have this conversation with somebody. I don't understand it quite well enough. On our homepage, on our website, enditforgood.com, um, I did a TEDx talk a couple of years ago. So it's a 20-minute version of the same things that you and I have been talking about, Vic, this, um, today. And it's a way that you can just send that to somebody and say, hey, can you listen to this and let's discuss it? Let's discuss these ideas. Uh, what do you think about this? So we've tried to create lots of opportunities for people um, to just have one step, one conversation. That's how change happens. As more people change their minds, that's how policy changes. So endeavorgood.com, you can sign up for our newsletter. There's lots of other ways that you can get involved there. Come follow us on social media and not just follow us, you know, interact with us. Uh, give us your questions. Give us your comments. Uh, we want this conversation, this dialogue, this movement to move out into the rest of the U.S. Um, so that as we think about drugs and addiction, we think, how can we save lives? How can we reduce harm? And that instead of fear, we have hope for a better future.
Love that. Appreciate you and all the work that you're doing and all the taking time here to share what you're up to and all this wonderful information, Christina, with us here at the Mindful Experiment and all everyone, all the listeners. Thanks, Vic. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. If you found this episode to be inspirational, pay it forward by sharing with someone that you know can benefit from this. If this is your first time tuning in, please follow us, connect with us so you don't miss another amazing episode. And until next time, keep rocking and rolling. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. If you found this episode to be inspirational, pay it forward by sharing with someone that you know can benefit from this. If this is your first time tuning in, please follow us, connect with us so you don't miss another amazing episode. Until next time, keep rocking and rolling.